Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast. Hope everybody enjoyed the previous episode, which focused on some of the Marlins roster decisions now that we actually are having a season, 60-game season, with a bunch of different rules, especially with the roster and with DH being implemented into the National League. I got all into that, all into the details of how that will affect the Marlins' decisions with players and their starting lineup moving forward. If you haven't listened to that, go ahead and take a listen if you want to get my take on what I think the Marlins are going to be doing in this abbreviated season, which is also very condensed as well. This episode, I'm going to be talking about the draft. I'm going to go back a little bit, but I'm going to be talking about the entire NL East, how the rest of the NL East did. I've talked about the Marlins and how they had a very solid draft, but what about the Marlins' counterparts, right? That's important too, because the NL East is loaded right now, and we know that. It's probably the best division in baseball, but in a couple years, which is the Marlins' window, how are the other teams going to be faring at that point? I think a lot of the NL East has plenty of young talent when you look across the board from the Braves to the Nationals to even the Phillies, not as much, but they do have some young talent mixed in there, and the Mets as well. I mean, this is going to be a good division for a while, but the Marlins, of course, have the most young talent coming up through the ranks because most of the NL East as it is now is already called up there top prospects and we've seen in the past you know you call up your top prospects and you're more competitive but if you don't replenish that farm system you can be in trouble that's exactly what happened with the Marlins in the 2012 to 2015 16 range as we saw and that's exactly why the Marlins had to hit the reset button so it's important to keep replenishing that farm system no matter how good you are at the big league level and the number one way to do that is through the draft so I honestly think the NLEs did a really good job across the board. I will go through who I think did the best and then going down to the worst draft. But overall, I think the NLEs did a very good job. The grades I gave, if you might have seen on Twitter, I gave like an actual letter grade for each team. While the specific letter grade might be a little bit arbitrary, the chronological order is exactly how I look at it. I think it's very distinct in terms of who had the first and best draft, second, third, fourth, and fifth. I'll start with the best draft, and it's actually not the Marlins. I've talked a lot about the Marlins and how good they did in this recent draft, but I don't know if they had the best draft because I really liked the Mets draft. And I'll start by recapping their selections, and then I'll tell you why they just edged out the Marlins in terms of my NL East power rankings, if you will, of the draft. So they started with Pete Crow Armstrong, which is exactly who I had in my mock draft going to the Mets. And before I pat myself on the back, I'll concede that that was probably one of the only selections I got correct. But it was because I really saw him as a great fit for the Mets. When they traded Jared Kalinick, which they will quite obviously regret for the foreseeable future, I think it was important for the Mets and Brody Van Wagenen to get another young outfielder who is promising and can make up for that void that trading Jared Kalinick left. The Mets have a pretty good outfield right now, actually a very good outfield right now, and some solid prospects, but a guy like Pete Crow Armstrong might have been the best player they could have picked up in terms of a young high school hitter at 19. And I think Pete Crow Armstrong was really just a victim of prospect fatigue, meaning that he had been on the radar of so many scouts and so many big league teams for so long now that if you don't meet these astronomical expectations, you 
kind of fade a little bit. And fade is a strong word because this guy still went 19th overall out of high school. But this is a guy that people were talking about going number one overall a couple years ago. And to put it into context, another guy that kind of was a victim of prospect fatigue, even though there were some more moving parts, was Blaze Jordan. Blaze Jordan reclassified to a year older and still went in the second round. Is going to be overslotted. So it doesn't mean that he wasn't good or didn't meet expectations. But when you have such lofty expectations for such a long time, sometimes if you don't end up just fully exceeding them, you're going to kind of just fatigue a little bit. That's a prospect fatigue is the perfect word and the perfect description of it. And unfortunately for Pete Crow Armstrong, I really believe that's the only reason why he slid out of the top 10, maybe because he already had that decent hit tool and the plus defending and above average speed and a solid arm that teams were hoping as he got older that he would fill out and tap into some more power. Right now, it still looks like the power's below average at about a 40 grade. So that could have been part of the reason why he did not totally ascend or maintain that top five type of prowess, but he was still a top 20 prospect going into this draft. And there's no reason to believe that he did not belong in the top 20 selections of this draft. So a great pick there for the Mets. They get a lot of value and a young player who still could tap into that power. And if he does, all of a sudden you've got a five-tool player that you selected relatively late in the first round, at least in the second half of the first round. So that was the, a great start for the Mets there. And then this is where it got interesting for me because they go in the second round and they decide to go get JT Ginn. And while JT Ginn has not technically put the ink to the paper yet, I fully expect him to sign because it seems like all the numbers are worked out where he can get almost double the slot value, which we knew just about everybody in the game knew it was going to take to get the former first rounder who didn't sign with the Dodgers when he was drafted by them in the first round, decides to go to college at Mississippi State, and has a very solid freshman campaign. Maybe was not as lights out as you would hope for a 20-year-old freshman, but he still goes 8-4, 313-ERA, 17 starts. He punches out 105 and 86 in a third inning. Very solid. It was fully expected to have a big year as a draft-eligible sophomore. This season, he only made one appearance before blowing out his elbow and eventually needing Tommy John surgery, as I said earlier. As we saw with the Marlins and time and time again now, Tommy John surgery does not scare most big league teams away now, especially when you have a chance at a big power arm like JT Ginn. So the Mets are able to snatch up a first-round talent in the second round, and then they go big in the third round again. I loved this pick by the Mets, and I think this is what put them over the top for my best draft in the NL East. It was Isaiah Green, another high-ceiling young high schooler that plays premium defense and can flat-out run. Isaiah Green's a left-handed hitter out of Corona High School in California, facing a lot of high-quality talent out on the West Coast, was committed and actually signed, excuse me, to Missouri. Ends up signing with the Mets for just under a million dollars, right under the slot value of the third-round pick. MLB Pipeline has him at a 55-hit tool, 65-run, excuse me, 55-fielding. The power is just below average at 45, solid arm, and overall a really solid prospect. Again, another guy. He's only 18 years old. He's 6'1", 180. Plenty of time to fill out. A nice stroke from the left side, and he can easily tap into some more power. So 
three high ceiling picks here for the Mets. Two high schoolers that have already shown that they can hit and will likely skip through rookie ball pretty quickly. And a guy in JT Ginn who is no doubt risky, but a first round talent as well and a super high ceiling arm that has top of the rotation potential. So they go with three straight picks of high ceiling players that you can make a case are top talents in the draft. And Green was the number 62 overall prospect by MLB Pipeline. So that's a good get there at 69. And really only for having to pay him $850,000 when the slot value is 929000 a really good sneaky pickup there when they know they have to overslot JT again. So right now you give Pete Crow Armstrong the exact slot value. You give Isaiah Green not even 100000 less than the slot value. Where are you going to make up the money? Well, that's in the final three selections, and that's where things are interesting. I would consider two of the Mets' final three picks essentially a punt because you look at the signing bonus and Anthony Walters in the third round, 91st overall, 22-year-old shortstop from San Diego State, he signs for $20,000. And you're thinking, why would he do that? Why would you sign for $20,000 unless you really want to play for the Mets? Why not just go undrafted and then you can pick whatever team you want for $20,000. It's not like he's making any more money by being drafted. The thing is, guys like Anthony Walters may not have been signed, period. So the Mets may have seen something in this kid. I'm sure they didn't just pick a random guy out of the hat, but I would assume the conversation went something along the lines of, we can guarantee you that you will be drafted by us if you accept $20,000, or you can take your chances in the undrafted free agency market with all this craziness going on. And if you're a 22-year-old shortstop that has already transferred from one school to another, I'm pretty sure there was a community college in between, you're just going to take the opportunity to play in pro ball. And I'm happy for Anthony Walters, but that was a pick in the third round that could have been a player that was probably worthy of being selected in the third round. That's why you saw so much talent returning to school because of how pitcher heavy this draft was and how many teams punted their picks or severely underslotted their picks. But if a guy's going to sign for $20,000, you have to assume that he didn't even like his chances in free agency and was going to take the sure thing. So the Mets save money there big time by signing Anthony Walters. I don't think Anthony Walters has much of a chance, no offense to the kid, to be a big leaguer, but the Mets are able to save the money there without literally throwing away a pick because you can't do that. So they still get a prospect in Walters. Maybe they like something in him and can think that they can do something with him. At the very least, he's a shortstop, can play multiple positions throughout the infield. Maybe you can get a utility type of guy out of him. Then the Mets go with one more pick that they don't punt. It's Matthew Dyer, catcher from Arizona, who I actually really like. A solid offensive player. We'll see if he can stick behind the dish, but put up fantastic numbers in the last season is a consistent offensive player. If he can stick behind the dish, that is a great pick there in the fourth round. They're able to get him for a little bit over 100000 under the slot value at $350,000. So they get one more solid pick in this draft before punting on their final pick with, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his name, Eric Orz, Orzy. He was their final selection. Don't know much on him. A pitcher out of New Orleans. When you draft a pitcher like that out of a small school or a mid-major school, you never know. You might find a diamond in the rough, but they get him to sign for $20,000 as well. And 
again, that's how they save between those two selections in the third round and the fifth round with those two players that signed for $20,000. They save almost a million dollars there, and then another 100000 saved with Matthew Dyer. They save well over a million dollars, and of course, they save on Isaiah Green as well. So you expect all of that money to go towards JT Ginn, and that's why the Mets will probably have no problem signing him. And basically, the way I look at it is JT Ginn would not have fallen to 52 if he wasn't such a question to be signable. So the Mets, in my opinion, traded the third and fifth round pick to move up into the first round with their second round pick. So I guess you can say they traded the second, third, and fifth round pick to move into the first round. I would do that for a guy like JT Ginn, and that's essentially what they did when they're going to overslot him. They basically traded into the top 20 with two picks, and that is a good move by the Mets. They're getting a lot of talent out of this draft. I would say three legitimate studs with a chance to be a top 100 prospect. All three of them should be top 100 prospects if everything works out in the right way and as we expect, and Matthew Dyer has every chance to be an impact player and at least be a backup catcher in the big leagues or a good solid bat that can climb his way up just riding through his offensive ability and his hit tool. So four valuable players, two lottery tickets that really afforded them the opportunity to get JT Ginn. And overall, I just think they navigated this draft perfectly. I would assume that the draft went exactly how the Mets and Brody Van Wagenen were hoping it would go because it just seemed like they were ahead of everybody else. And the dominoes just fell in the right place for them. And that's why I got the Mets at number one. That's a pretty long explanation for the Mets, but that's why I had to really sell you on my case for number one. I'm not going to waste time going into the Marlins draft detail by detail because I have individual episodes on the Marlins draft if you want to go check those out. But overall, I'll tell you why they edged the Marlins out before I move on to the other teams. And it's the fact that the Marlins did a great job getting high quality arms and high ceiling arms. But I do have some concern, especially with some of the later picks like Kyle Hurt and Jake Eater, that they have a very high level of bullpen risk. Same with Kyle Nicholas. I do really like some of these arms, but you are taking on a lot of risk here. At the same time, Kyle Nicholas, at the very worst, I think is a high leverage bullpen arm. You could say the same with Max Meyer, who I think won't have a problem being a starter. Just overall, as you look through the later picks, I expect Jake Eater to at best be a bullpen arm, and I'm not a fan of the Kyle Hurt pick, to be honest. I do think that the Marlins maybe could have punted that pick, taken a page out of the Mets book, and overslotted in another selection spot. But overall, a really good draft by the Marlins, and not far off from the Mets, because overall, I would say, through all of their picks, they might have gotten a more even distribution of value, but that wasn't the Mets' game there. The Mets wanted to maximize the value in the early rounds, and that's exactly what they did. And then they were able to snatch up a pretty solid player with their fourth round selection. So the Mets take first place, Marlins come in second, and then I'm going to get into the final three teams real quick, and I'll tell you why the Braves had by far the worst draft. And that is no bias, I promise. I have nothing against the Braves. I'm trying to be as objective as possible, but the Braves had the worst draft, and I'll tell you why after the break. As always, I got to remind you guys to try the best tasting protein bar ever. It's Built Bar with 16 different flavors. Built Bar has eight chocolate nut flavors, eight chocolate nut free flavors, but all bars are covered in 100% chocolate, soft, easy to chew, 
tons of protein, not a lot of calories, not a lot of sugar, not a lot of carbs. What more can you ask for? They taste great. You've got a massive selection to choose from, and you get $10 off your first order by using promo code Locked On at BuiltBar.com. That's one word, Locked On, for $10 off your first order at BuiltBar.com. Let me know what you think of them. So I went deep into detail on the Mets because they were my number one overall draft in the NL East. While that might not be a popular opinion, I told you why. You might agree, you might not agree. That's the beauty of baseball. And that's the thing is I could easily be wrong or you could be wrong if you disagree with me, but we won't find out until later and until these guys really end up playing and seeing what they do. But based on my personal projections and how I think these guys are going to pan out or who is going to pan out, really liked the Mets draft uh, and just edges out the Marlins. Coming in at third, though, is the Nationals. And I think that people are really sleeping on this draft from the Nats. Cade Cavalli, solid pick in the first round, right around where he was expected to go. One of those just obvious solid selections, in my opinion. And then Cole Henry. We don't know what he's going to get yet in terms of signing bonus, unless something has happened recently and I missed it, but probably going to get a slight overslot, and he deserves it. He's a really talented pitcher that is a steal for me, in my opinion, in the second round, and I'll tell you why. Henry was another draft-eligible sophomore, so you're getting a college pitcher with not too many innings on his arm, which is really important because he was dealing with some elbow soreness in the past, but in his freshman season, he goes 4-2 and two in 14 games, 11 starts, 58 innings pitched. He struck out 72, and this is at LSU. I'm sorry if I didn't mention that before, so pitching against some good offenses in the SEC, and then in his abbreviated sophomore season, goes 2-1 and one with a 1.89 ERA. That's in four starts, 19 innings, punches out 23. The command is pretty solid, only walking 24 and 77 and a thirds innings. That's pretty solid in college. You'll see some pretty egregious walk numbers if you look across college starters. And there's several scouts out there, including MLB Pipeline, Baseball America too, that could see him having, Cole Henry, having three plus pitches when it's all said and done. He was a guy that was in the upper 90s out of high school, his velocity has taken a little bit of a hit. I think that this time off will be good for him, especially with some of that elbow soreness. But he's 6'4", 211 pounds. And if you're getting a player that has the potential to have three, even above average pitches, forget plus, to pair with solid control and command already, this is a guy that could quickly ascend through the system. And barring you know any issue of health, he should be a guy that ends up being one of those steals in the second round as well. I think that right with JT Ginn, this is a really high-quality pick in the second round, a top 50 prospect across the board no matter where you look in terms of the draft prospect rankings. And I was a big fan of that selection right there, which leads me into another good pick for the Nationals right after it. And that is Samuel Infante, a local kid from down here in South Florida, from Monsignor Edward Pace High School. Of course, most of you guys probably know it as Pace if you're from down here, and you also know it as a baseball powerhouse that seems to pump at least one or two players into the draft straight out of high school every single year. Infante, a solid shortstop, 18 years old, signs for just over the slot value of 800000 He gets a million dollars on the dot. The wild thing about Infante is going 71st overall out of high school is not even the highest a pace shortstop has been selected in the last couple years. 
because Jeter Downs was selected 32nd overall just a couple years ago, already a top 100 prospect now with the Red Sox. So good company for Samuel Infante. I'm not sure if they had any overlap, if Jeter Downs was able to be a mentor for him. But regardless, another high-quality shortstop out of pace who is well-rounded, maybe not quite the power of Jeter Downs yet, who was just incredible in high school with how many home runs he was able to hit, but just an all-around solid player. Does not have a wow tool yet, but he's young, continues to improve, put up some crazy numbers regardless out of high school, and was really impressive in the college circuit as well. I'm pretty high on Sammy Infante, and I think he will be a pretty solid prospect moving forward and a guy that could be a late bloomer and turn into a really good steal there at 71st overall. The next pick for the Nationals I loved. You add the fact that the Nationals were able to underslot Holden Powell with their fourth selection. I think this was an absolute steal as well because 94th overall with Holden Powell, who is limited as a reliever, and that is part of the reason why he went late. But this is probably the best closer in the nation the last couple years. Pitched for Team USA, made a couple appearances in the Cape where I saw him and was just lights out. I know you hear, this guy might have the best breaking ball in the draft. This guy might have the best fastball in the draft. And people throw that out there a lot. The slider, best slider in the draft was Max Meyer. And then maybe Kyle Nicholas. Holden Powell is not far behind. It's a 60-grade slider, no problem. A mid-90s fastball that can touch higher. He needs to work on the command. And the changeup right now is, is pretty useless, to be blunt. But this is a guy with an elite fastball slider combination already that has given him absurd strikeout numbers later in his college career, especially just in the nine and a thirds innings he was able to pitch this season, picked up three saves before the season ended, and in nine innings, punched out 20, yes, 20 batters in nine innings. And even in 2019 at UCLA, led the nation with 17 saves, punched out 65 in 49 innings. And the thing is with Holden Powell, the command is a little bit questionable. And when he ends up really getting hurt is the free passes because he really doesn't give up any hard contact. Only three home runs given up in 91 and two-thirds innings in his college career. Three home runs, that's it. Only gave up 50 hits. This is just a lights-out reliever and somebody that's going to climb through the system rapidly. You could probably make the case that he can come up to the bigs By the end of this year, if the Nationals are making a run, I don't know if they'll rush him, but he has the one-two combo already. That could make him a legitimate bullpen arm in the bigs very soon. So maybe you don't want to draft a reliever that early, but instead of punting a pick, where if they did punt, they would have saved more money, they still save $100,000 plus and get probably as high of a floor reliever as you're going to find in this draft. I'd be shocked if Holden Powell is not a big league reliever within the next two to three years. So the Nationals then make two more selections, and with their fourth round pick, you knew this was probably coming with either the fourth or the fifth round pick, but with the fourth round pick, you got the punt, which was not really as bad of a punt as some of the other selections we saw with other teams. It's a catcher out of Oklahoma in Brady Lindsley. And Lindsley is not a bad prospect by any means. I think in a regular draft, he's probably a ninth or 10th rounder, somewhere in that range. But for whatever reason, he was not super confident in his ability to get signed 
or just didn't want to take the chances, so he signs for $20,000 as well. And a solid college catcher, flat out. I mean, Oklahoma's not the best competition, so you'd like to see some better offensive numbers, but his junior year, 291, a 364 on base, five home runs, and he's a solid defensive catcher. Was off to a pretty good start this year as well. Did make an appearance in the Cape in 2018, but he did struggle pretty pretty badly. Hit 196, did not leave the yard once, and drove in eight runs. So this is a guy that, you know, is not going to wow you by any means. Maybe you're going to hope that he can become a backup catcher or something really clicks with him offensively. But that didn't really matter to the Nationals. Whatever they get from him is a bonus because they had to find the money somehow to be able to sign both Cole Henry and Samuel Infante. They were able to do that with this pick, as well as the Holden Powell pick, and their fifth round was an underslot as well, but it's a guy I really like, Mitchell Parker, out of San Jack or San Jacinto College, which is a JUCO powerhouse. The Nationals are very familiar with San Jack. That is where they drafted their first-round pick last year with Jackson Rutledge, and that's just a school that pumps out draft picks and Division One players left and right. Mitchell Parker is a really solid left-handed pitcher. We'll see if he can stay as a starter. He has a lot of reliever risk, but he put up ridiculous numbers in this past season, even though it was abbreviated. 5-0 and in six starts, gave up just four earned runs in 30 and a third's innings, and he punched out 64 and 30 and a third. That's a 1.89 ERA, or excuse me, a 1.19 ERA. And his strikeout per nine inning ratio was 18.99. While this is junior college and it's not Division One competition, Sanjak is in a pretty tough conference for junior college and faces plenty of Division One talent. Mitchell Parker could be a very solid value pick there in the fifth round. They sign him for $100,000, which is still pretty well below the $346,000 slot bonus there. And Mitchell Parker made it clear that he did not want to go to college if he didn't have to. He was committed to Kentucky, ultimately signs with the Nationals, and they keep their San Jacinto pipeline running here. Ultimately, four pitchers for the Nationals, and all with pretty significant upside, Cade Cavalli and Cole Henry have the potential to be frontline starters. Holden Powell and Mitchell Parker, to me, have the potential to be back-end relievers and high-leverage relievers at the next level. And we'll see what can happen with Brady Lindsley. But I also really liked the Samuel or Sammy Infante pick from Pace High School down here. Another shortstop that could really blossom before our eyes. So two teams left. I'll get to the Braves as I round things out, but real quick, I will talk about another draft that I really thought was quietly solid, and that is the Philadelphia Phillies draft with limited selections. They didn't have a second-round pick because of the compensation pick they lose by signing a free agent. Mick Abel with the first-round pick, they have to overslot him, but maybe the best high school pitcher in this draft, big fan of Mick Abel being able to sign him for just $200,000 over the, the slot value, actually not even two hundred, dollars just under that. That was a great get for the Phillies and just a really good young arm that I'm really excited to see what he can do. I think he could end up really impressing and ascending up the prospect rankings quickly. Then Casey Martin in the third round, 87th overall. 
he fell right into the Phillies' lap. I don't think the Phillies expected that to happen whatsoever. I mean, I know the Phillies didn't expect Casey Martin to fall that far. And when somebody like Casey Martin falls into your lap, you take him. But the problem is, he's not going to agree to the 600000 signing bonus that was allotted for that selection. Casey Martin thought he might be going in the first round. For whatever happened that caused him to fall, I'm assuming teams weren't sold on his hit tool. But he is a freak athlete, can fly, good with the glove, has some power. I would have taken him in a heartbeat in the second round. But for whatever reason, he falls. And the Phillies have to pony up and give him twice the slot value. He gets $1.3 million. And while I'm sure the Phillies are not upset that they got Casey Martin, I'm sure they were thrilled, it throws off their entire draft plan because I'm sure they were not planning on doubling the slot value in the third round. So now you got to figure things out kind of quickly. And with the fourth round pick, I also really liked it. It was Carson Ragsdale. There's a lot of risk to the Ragsdale pick because the pitcher out of South Florida, before I get into him, I'll tell you who he is, six foot seven, and a guy that has just continued to improve since he started at South Florida. His freshman year hardly pitched, only threw 10 innings and walked 10, so he very much struggled then. His sophomore year settles in, makes 16 appearances as a reliever, and does not make a single start, only pitches 21 innings, but does improve to a 3-3 ADRA. He then goes to the Northwoods League, where he was pretty solid there as well, makes 18 appearances, and still does not make a single start. So at this point, you're like, this guy's probably a reliever. But what I liked is he punched out 40 and 26 in a third's innings. His command was a little bit better. Still need to see it improve beyond the fact that he's still walking 18 and 26 in a third, which is not good by any means. But it's still a little bit better than 10 and 10 innings as he had in his freshman season. The problem is, for Ragsdale at this point, he had not made a single start in his collegiate career, even if you're including summer collegiate league as well. He misses the 2019 season with an injury, pitches in this abbreviated season this year. He's already 22 years old, but South Florida uses him as a starter, and he makes four starts and was phenomenal in those four starts. 19 innings, punches out 37, and only walks seven. The strikeout numbers, astronomical and just really impressive for the big right-hander. And you could make the case that maybe this 6'7", 6'8", right-hander was just a late bloomer, and now he's starting to figure it out. We know how hard it is for tall, lanky pitchers to repeat their mechanics, but once they figure it out, they have an edge with just an effortless fastball, a really nice downward angle on their pitches, whether it's a breaking ball or a fastball, and it just... Think about some of the best pitchers that we've seen in baseball. While height is not essential, height can be very beneficial and can create a very effortless perceived velocity as well. Six foot eight would be one of the taller pitchers in the entire major leagues if he's able to make it up. And that would be, that's for a reason, right? I mean, not every six, eight guy's playing baseball, but also a lot of tall pitchers, they do struggle to continuously throw strikes. So we'll see what happens with Ragsdale. What I do like about the pick is that this is a guy that was rapidly trending upward. I mean, it doesn't get much more dramatic than how much he was trending upward. He goes from not making a single start in his career 
coming off of an injury to making four lights out starts. But is four starts enough for you to bet on a kid that has struggled his entire career out of the bullpen for the most part? I don't know. But in the fourth round at an underslot, I think it's worth a chance, especially when you have to kind of go in panic mode and figure out how you're going to save the money to pay Casey Martin because McAbel already got over the slot value and now you know you're going to have to give Casey Martin more than the slot value. So given the circumstances, Ragsdale a great pick. They saved $250,000 there. And then in the fifth round, I don't like the pick at all. It's Baron Radcliffe, somebody I saw quite extensively in the Cape. And Radcliffe does boast plus power potential, but his hit tool is a massive concern for me. Again, the Phillies had to find a way to save some money. They end up doing that by drafting Baron Radcliffe. They save $271,000, but that's still not even enough to fully pay Casey Martin. So the Phillies are going to be in the penalty there where they're going to have to pay a few extra cents on the dollar for the signing bonuses, but I think they're fine with that because of the fact that they got Casey Martin. But Radcliffe, a 236 career hitter in college baseball, he did hit 12 home runs in his junior season in 58 games, does have just absolute off-the-charts pop, but the strikeouts are a major concern. 135 strikeouts in 112 games, that's 398 plate appearances. And in the Cape, it was more of the same. He did slug six home runs, which was impressive, but 37 punch-outs in 29 games. And perhaps the most concerning part of everything with Baron Radcliffe for me is he's a little bit limited defensively, but he cannot hit left-handed pitching. In the Cape, he was 1-for-21 against left-handers with 10 strikeouts. And that doesn't even tell the whole story. Watching him against some of the left-handers in the Cape He really looked uncomfortable every single time, whether it was a mediocre southpaw or a really solid southpaw. He just seemed to not see the ball well. So you're looking, best case, probably a platoon guy unless something really just comes together for Baron Radcliffe. But as a flyer in the fifth round, not a bad pick. Overall, the Phillies were able to take advantage of a really good player in the second round, or I guess third round, their second selection falling to them. They take a couple flyers at four and five. And overall, I give it you know, a slightly above average job on the draft, being able to figure out a way to pay Casey Martin and getting the blue chip prospect in Mick Abel makes it good enough for me. But the two flyers at the end, not so much. But overall, solid draft for the Phils. And I'll round things out now with the Braves. So overall, I mean, there's no doubting and no disputing how talented the Braves big league roster is. They also have a great farm system. But I just don't understand what they were thinking with this draft here. A couple of good selections in the middle. But the first round pick right off the bat just really did not love that one. Nothing against Jared Schuster. I wish him all the best. But I just don't understand this selection here. This is a guy that's had massive control issues. I I see that they probably are betting on his stuff as a left-handed pitcher that throws in the mid-90s. 6'3", 210 pounds. Big guy, but he's already pretty filled out. I don't know if he has much more to tap into in that arm. And his freshman season was a disaster at Wake Forest. Makes 22 appearances, pitches to a 7-4-1 ERA. He walks 21 and 34 innings. He goes and pitches in the NECBL, which is a step down from the Northwoods League. He's pretty solid there his freshman summer. He comes back to Wake Forest trying to build off of that. Wake Forest tries to use him as a starter. He makes 12 starts. Pitches to a 6-4-9 ERA and 68 innings, gives up 83 hits, 
walks 37, does punch out 94. And that's a big thing with, with Jared Schuster is he does have great strikeout stuff, a great fastball, and a wipeout breaking ball. But he doesn't throw strikes, and he falls behind hitters, and that's why he gives up so many hits. He goes to the Cape, though, and again, pitches very well in the Cape in 2019, makes seven starts and 32 innings, strikes out 35, only gives up 20 hits. So you'd think he's going to build off of that and roll it into you know his spring again. This time he's able to use the momentum a little bit, and in four starts of the abbreviated season, he does punch out a whopping 43 in 26 innings. But again, are you willing to bet on four starts with your first round pick? Maybe the Braves are betting on a little bit more with his two solid summer appearances, especially with the Cape Cod League pitching for Orleans last year. But for me, you got a first round pick. You got a chance to get a lot of different impact players at 25. Jared Schuster was the 77th rated prospect per MLB pipeline. I think Jared Schuster was somebody that they clearly really liked, and the Braves did not have a second-round pick. So they saw this as their only opportunity to get Schuster because he probably wouldn't have fallen all the way to 97. I understand maybe wanting to select him at 25, but if you're only going to save $600,000, which is what it looks like, not even, just over half a million on Schuster, the slot value was 2.7. They signed him for 2.2. Is that really worth it? I know the Braves were big into Bryce Jarvis, and they were trying to get Bryce Jarvis. He falls off the board a little bit before they were going to make their selection, so I know that was probably a shot in the foot for the Braves, but they shift over to Schuster, and I think that is a steep drop-off in terms of prospect value and what you can get in the pick at 25. There are plenty of good players still on the board there, and that's what the Braves wanted, though, and that's the pick they make, but they only save 600000 But before I jumped on them for that pick when I was watching the draft. I said, okay, well, let's see what they use that money for. Whatever they sign, I thought that he would sign for much less than 2.1, to be honest. I said, I'm not going to judge that pick until I see where they allocate the rest of their money. They go and get Jesse Franklin. Jesse Franklin is a pretty solid outfielder from Michigan. I don't love Big Ten bats and outfielders, because they just don't face great competition for the most part. And I'd really like to see what they do in the Cape or in the postseason. Franklin did show some good stuff in both the Cape and in the postseason for Michigan. And the thing with Franklin is he was fantastic his freshman season. Hits 327, 10 bombs. Then goes into Brewster in the Cape Cod League his freshman summer. Hits 302. And you're thinking, wow, this guy's a legitimate you know, day one prospect, he still was, but then his junior season disappoints to a degree, only hits 262, does slug 13 home runs in that incredible run by Michigan last year, but then goes to Brewster late after the long run, you know, maybe he was tired, it was a college world series run for that ball club, and he, he wasn't bad, he just struggled a little bit, hit 282, one home run, just not the numbers you would want out of a guy that hit 300 his freshman summer there. So you see the regression. It's a little bit concerning. But overall, you, you can see that Jesse Franklin offers a lot at the plate and is very athletic. And not a bad pick there in the third round, underslotted about by about a hundred grand there. So again, you you still have a lot of savings here. How are you going to use them? They don't use it with the fourth round pick either. They draft Spencer Strider out of Clemson, who's fine. I like Spencer Strider, a solid pitching prospect who missed the 2019 season 
You could be buying low on a kid that really didn't get a chance to show too much, was pretty solid in the Cape as a freshman as well, and was off to a decent start this year. Just still another pitcher who has not shown that he can legitimately be a full-time starter, does have plenty of reliever risk, but we're talking about a fourth-round pick. He gets exactly the slot value there too. So still, we're like, where are they going to use the money that they saved? And so far, they haven't, so you figure they're going to use it in the fifth round, and they do with Bryce Elder out of Texas. Bryce Elder, another solid pitcher who I I do like and, of course, is a great value pick in the fifth round. But Bryce Elder is not a wow prospect, and they do give him way over the slot value there. Slot value of 336000 He gets 850000 which was enough to sway him from college or to sway him from returning for his senior year, which I don't even think it would have taken that much. And he put up pretty solid numbers throughout his collegiate career, throughout his 39 appearances, 18 starts, 10 and 6, 342 ERA, 144 and two-thirds innings, strikes out 149, solid command, only walks 58. Nothing really jumps off the charts for you, nothing really incredible to look at, but you're looking at a solid, probably potential back-end pitcher that you get in the fifth round. So a good value pick there, but overall, is that worth really severely underslotting in the first round and then slightly underslotting in the second round? Like You basically traded back in the first to move up in the fifth. That's the way I look at it for the Braves. Unless they see something in Jared Schuster that I don't see. Jared Schuster could very well be an okay player. He very well could be. But for me, there's so many good players that were on the board there offensively and pitchers as well, such as Slade Jaconi or Carmen Molodzinski from South Carolina, or even players like Dylan Dingler, offensive players. I would have probably rather have taken Dax Fulton because you could have underslotted him even more and saved even more money. I, I just don't really get the pick. But again, maybe the Braves saw something I didn't see. But overall, it just doesn't make sense to me to you know, take a hit on the talent you're taking in the first round and then not really make up for it in the subsequent rounds until the fifth where you overslot a guy who probably you know, won't be an impact, impact player, even though he's a high floor starting pitcher going into pro ball. We'll see how it goes for the Braves. We'll see if they prove me wrong. But I could see them really ultimately getting nothing out of this draft. It's a very possible scenario. I know you could say that there's a risk of that with any draft, but with the Braves only making four selections this year and the way they decided to go about it, I just don't know if it was after the underslot of Schuster, the players they thought they would be there in the third and fourth rounds weren't there. I don't know what happened, but I'd like to think that just things didn't go as planned and the underslot ended up biting them in the butt because I just don't see how they could have wanted the draft to unfold the way it did. And then I think they might have just panicked and overslotted Bryce Elder after the two overslot candidate or the two picks where they wanted to overslot maybe several different candidates in the third and fourth round. Maybe all of those candidates fell off the board. I really don't know. But for whatever happened, I'm sure they never admit it. But I'm going to bet on the fact that things did not go the way they expected. So overall, that is my NL East draft recap. I think everybody killed it except for the Braves. No offense. And I might have Braves fans on me for that and for my grades on Twitter. But, you know, if if somebody wants to tell me why I'm wrong and why the Braves draft was great, I'd be happy to listen. But overall, a tip of the cap to the entire NL East. A very solid draft day, and 
It seems like the NL East is going to be the powerhouse of Major League Baseball for the foreseeable future, especially as the Marlins continue to improve. Let me know if you enjoyed this episode. I know it was a little bit long. I apologize for that, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. I will be back talking to you guys very soon about more Marlins baseball. We're getting closer to the start of this season, believe it or not.